Father, we come before you this morning humbled by the grace that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come this morning to this preaching of your word and ask that your spirit would descend upon us, descend upon me. May the words that I say be your words for your people. And for all of us, may you soften our hearts to receive them. And may we receive your word and may it take root in our lives and grow. We pray this to you, our God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I really love that song that we sang there in the God of the Gospel. Um, I can't, what's, I'm, I'm blanking. What's the title of it? Oh, come, come Emmanuel. It's, it's great. I, I love that song. So much of it. That shows you how bright I am. Uh, not very. Uh, but it's a lovely song, and it captures so much. What we're going to be talking about this morning is this expectation for God to come and be with us. Our God, our covenant God, to come and make his residence in and among his people. That's our hope. That's the hope of the Christian life, to be united to the God who created this world. I love the way the Christian year begins. It begins... Well, it began, we could say, a week ago, last week, with the first Sunday in Advent. But it begins with this season of Advent. And as a season in the Christian year, the time of Advent is one of training. Advent trains our attention to focus on the Advent of Christ. That's why, I mean, I guess much like the song, uh, titles are what they are. The focus on the Advent of Jesus Christ. And throughout this season, we look forward to, we focus on not just Jesus' first advent, but his second. And yet as Christians, we're called to do this in a kind of an awkward way, a really weird way. We're called to look forward to the time of Christ's coming. We look forward by looking backwards. And if you were someone to ask me, why don't you take a look? If I was to ask someone, can you look up there and see what it says on the billboard? and they were to turn around and look the other direction and tell me what it said in front of us, I think we'd probably all think that person's a little cuckoo. We look forward by looking backwards. And this manner of looking forward by looking backward produces something quite remarkable in God's children. It equips us to endure the various hardships and challenges we experience in the present. Right now, even in a year like 2020, and I think the one that's a bit more surprising to me is that it equips us to endure prosperity. So I want you to know prosperity can be equally as damning of a reality for God's people as the difficult times. It's equally as hard to stay faithful, maybe even more so in the midst of prosperity. Looking forward by looking backward produces Christian hope. And we have to qualify it. We have to say Christian hope because this is not any other hope that we know about. It produces in us Christian hope. Now, what is this Christian hope? Christian hope is the confident affirmation that God is faithful and the confident expectation that God will do what he promises. He will act in the ways that he said he will act. Christian hope is confident affirmation that God is faithful and confident expectation that God will act in the ways that he said he would act. He fulfills his promises. The word hope in ordinary English usage is generally distinguished from certainty. 
that we normally would say hope in a sentence like this. I don't know what's going to happen, or I don't know when the virus will end, but I sure hope it would. I sure wish it would. I sure hope that would happen. When you read the word hope in the Bible, however, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not positivity. No, hope is a certainty. Hear Peter in, in 1 Peter 1.13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. The idea is there is this thing is set on a firm foundation. This is not a wishful thought. There's a confidence in this. Set your hope on something that can withstand it, something that can hold it up. Set your hope firmly in the grace of God that will be brought to you, revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. It's not wishful thinking. This is not positive thinking. This is certainty. That's the hope that God calls us to as believers. That's the hope we have in Christ. And this confidence that marks Christian hope arises from the very character of our God as faithful, dependable, unmoving, stable. I think we need someone in our life like that. Do we not? Don't we, in the midst of all that happens in our world, all the craziness of this past year, in the midst of everything that happens in our lives, the uncertainties, everything that happens, one thing can be sure that we can be sure of, is that God is dependable. He's faithful to his people. Utterly faithful. And we come to see and know the faithfulness of God most readily by looking backward. There's a painting by Hans Holbein. Uh, It's a Renaissance religious painter. It's an allegory of scripture. And it uh, it has all the prophets in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ on the on the cross. And then it has all the New Testament writers pointing backwards to Christ on the cross. That's what it is for the New Testament believer to gain hope. Look back. Remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. There's certainty in that. He's faithful to us. And we understand this faithfulness when we look back and we remember real tangible acts of God in history on behalf of his people and for the life of the world. I want you to know what we come here this morning, the God we worship and the stories we tell, they happened. They're not fairy tales. When we use the word story here, we're talking about the true story of the world and the God who created it, not fairy tales. This is a God that can be depended upon. He is a God who is faithful. And Advent invites us to relive again for the next year the true story of God's faithfulness to Israel, but not only them, also to the church and to the world revealed in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Right? You know, the Christian year is a reliving of Christ's life and the story of the church. Every year we're invited to remember the thing that our hope is grounded upon. God's act, his gracious act towards us in his son. That should give us hope, a confidence to live in this world in a certain way, no matter what the circumstances are. No matter what the circumstances are inside of ourselves and our relationships. Hope. And when we submit ourselves and our children to relive to retell and to remember this true story of God's faithfulness in Christ. The Spirit of God does something 
remarkable. The Spirit of God takes our hearts and cultivates them. You know what it cultivates? It turns the ground over. It breaks up the ground, and it turns it over. It makes it soft so it can receive well the seed. So the Spirit of God cultivates our hearts and then plants the seeds of hope in them. Hope of God's certainty, the certain acts, the faithful acts of God in the past on our behalf. And then the Spirit takes those seeds planted and nurtures them to a fruitful maturity to bear fruit in our lives so that we can be in the midst of a turbulent time also stable people. People who do not turn or cower from what faces us, whether it be natural disasters or or forces that oppose us and the gospel of Christ, this hope allows us to stand firm. Because again, we're standing upon the God who acts on our behalf, has acted on our behalf, and will continue to do so in our lives and throughout history for all eternity. Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen. Something is going to happen, and you put your trust in that promise. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it. It will come to pass. That's the simple truth, but we need to hear it repeated over and over again. And in this type of hope, we came in the 9 a.m. service to this baptismal font, to these waters of baptism, we came in hope. Confidently trusting that God would do what he has promised to do through plain, ordinary water, the stuff of creation, the stuff of his creation. He promised that through the waters of baptism that he would set apart, he would sanctify Goldie Grace Siler, and he did that this morning. He did it. There's a certainty in what he did this morning for her. There's a certainty for what he did for you when you were baptized. Even at times when you may turn away from it, he still stands there. For Goldie this morning, he promised to set her apart. He also promised to unite her in this water to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. She died and was born again. Parents, we're having a child on the 26th of February. It's a fearful thing to bring your kids to the waters of baptism. Because you're killing them in one sense. And you're asking them to enter into a battle on the side of God against the forces of evil. That's no small thing to enter into. God united Goldie in the waters of baptism to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he has promised to unite her also this morning to us, to you and me, his people, the body of Christ here at Christ Church. She is our sister. She is our daughter in Christ. You have a larger family this morning. I love the image in the Psalms, and I think Psalm 60 something, but God says he sets the lonely in families. That's what he does every time at baptism. He takes someone who is separated and alienated from him and from those, even her parents in one sense, you could say, and he unites them. He united Goldie with a bond far stronger than blood. 
because the waters of baptism are far thicker and far stronger than blood. That's what God's done this morning. He has already fulfilled some promises for us. We have reason to be confident. And we are confident. We are hopeful that God will do what he promises to do because God has always done what he promises to do. And we see this clearly in our Old Testament, in our gospel lessons this morning. The words of prophecy in Isaiah 40 were spoken to a people in exile. A people stripped of their identity. For ancient Israelites, their identity was rooted in three things. One, it was rooted in the city of Jerusalem as a symbol for the land that God gave them in his covenant with Abraham. This is the place where he set his name. Their identity in part was so connected to Jerusalem, to the land, to the promises of God, to their ancestor Abraham. And the second thing of their identity was rooted in the temple, the place where God was worshipped, the place where his Shekinah glory dwelled in the Holy of Holies. This was the epicenter of Jewish life. This is where their identity was. And the God who promised to be their God. In Exodus, God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's my promise to you. When my presence is there with you in the temple and in the tabernacle, I will be your God and you will be my people. That formed their identity. And lastly, their identity was formed by David's heirs. God made a covenant with David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. And their identity was rooted in those three things. The city of Jerusalem as a symbol for the land, the, the temple as the place of God's presence, and then the king, the Davidic king. But for the folks that Isaiah prophesied to, they're already several decades into the exile, and they had already lost all of that. David's heir was now a captive to a pagan king. The temple was plundered and destroyed. Every stone overturned. Jerusalem was burned, looted, and the walls of the city were flattened, and the land was empty and desolate. We're talking about a people who had lost everything. God, family, friends, homes, land, identity, everything. And they no doubt thought that God's covenant with them, the ones that he made with Abraham and re-solidified at Sinai, and even the covenant he made with David, were all done they were all broken, beyond repair because of their sin, generational sin, wickedness, and idolatry. They no doubt thought that the covenant with God was over. Can you imagine the hopelessness, the hopelessness that laid upon these folks, crushing them under the weight of sorrow and pain, guilt and shame? Can you imagine the guilt and shame crushing them? Depression about the past that was, and anxious despair about an uncertain future. All of us, I think, at some point, or maybe even this morning, can identify, maybe in some small way, with what it felt like for an Israelite to be in exile. We know a little bit about shame and guilt. We know something about the brokenness of this world. Isolation, loneliness. All of us have felt like this at some point, and we are acquainted with the struggle to find hope. 
to find a hope more sure and more real than wishful thinking. A solid hope, a confident hope, a certain hope. And in the midst of exile, in the midst of hopelessness or the struggle to find hope, God's voice rings out from his heavenly throne room in Isaiah 40, and we hear, Comfort! Comfort! My people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, her service is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We may hear those words and think that the words comfort, comfort were the most important and the most meaningful to Israel, and they weren't. They were not. And while these words were certainly important and meaningful, they do not compare to Israel hearing God say, the God of Israel, the God, the creator of the universe, say these words, My people, your God says. A people who had thought they had, their relationship with God was over and done and broken. God had forever left them when the Shekinah glory left the temple. God reaches out to them decades into exile in the midst of hopelessness and he says, my people. God has not given up on the covenant. When we fail God, he doesn't quit on us. God is faithful even in the presence of our unfaithfulness. He is faithful to us. That's a beautiful reality. That warms our hearts. We want to hear that. We want God to say, my people, my son, my daughter. In these words from the mouth of God, hope is conceived. The despair that was lost, the despair that their covenant with God was forever broken because of their sin, begins to fade when they hear God declare those familiar words of covenant relationship. My people, your God, I am your God, and you are my people. And what follows in Isaiah 40, God promises to return to Israel and in the process reveal his glory to all the nations. He will reveal his glory to all creation, all flesh. He promises to return as the divine shepherd king who with one arm rules in strength, executing justice and righteousness, and we long for that. But yet he also says that he'll come back with his other arm and he will be the one with his tender, compassionate arm and gather up his sheep and bring them close to his side and he cuddles them. What a beautiful, intimate image of God taking his people, you and I, and cuddling us, caring for us, tenderly, compassionately, and God fulfilled the promises spoken in Isaiah 40. He was faithful to his promise to comfort and restore. Our gospel lesson from Mark 1 proclaims how that fulfillment began through John the Baptist, preaching repentance and baptizing in the wilderness in preparation for the return of God to his people. We sang that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. Come. And I tell you this, God did come. Confidently, in history, he entered it. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, God came into this world and it was birthed. And he grew up and he lived a life 
not so unfamiliar to yours and mine. He lived a life. God came. The Father sent his only Son, Jesus, to take on our flesh, to make straight the level paths of our hearts and lives, which we are unable to straighten and make, make flat on our own. Jesus made these paths straight. He gives us new hearts of flesh and not of stone. He makes our hearts pliable. He breaks up that ground. And he does all this because he's accepted Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. He died for you. God is faithful to do what he promises to do. And we know this because God has been faithful in the past to do what he promises to do. Church, it's easy to lose sight of this. It's easy to lose sight of God's faithfulness in the midst of exile for Israel. No doubt they, were, they had lost sight and given up hope to some extent, if not completely. It's difficult to lose sight. It's easy to lose sight of God's faithfulness in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of continuing decades of social unrest. It's easy to lose sight of his faithfulness. In the midst of depression or anxiety, it's easy to lose sight of his faithfulness. In the midst of relational tensions, it's easy to lose sight of his faithfulness. So this morning, we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness to us so that we can live in hope in the present that one day God will make all things new when he returns in glory. That's the advent we're looking forward to. That's the advent we have a confident hope confident hope in. And so, we need to be reminded of our baptisms. We need to be reminded of our baptisms. In our baptisms, God marked us out as his own. He sanctified us as his children. He united us together with Christ. And this is how the Spirit of God builds hope in us. We remember God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. That's how hope is built. Remembering God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. At the beginning of a new year in the church and at the end of 2020, we need to build hope in one another and in ourselves. Do we not? Do we not? And we need to do this by remembering our baptisms, among other things. We remember what God and Christ has done for us. Listen to Paul in Romans 8.32 as we close here. He who did not spare his own son, past tense, what we look at behind us, but gave him up for us all. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously, or give him graciously to us in all things? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's our hope. Based upon what God has done in giving us Jesus, we have a hope that he will give us all things in Jesus. How do we build hope in the future that God promises? We look back at, the, at what Christ has done for us. Christ died for you and me, rose again for me and you, and therefore all the promises of God are yes in him. So this Advent, let's look away from the circumstances that confront us, not ignoring them, but let's not focus on them. And let's look to Christ. Let's look to the promises and hold fast to them. Hope comes from the promises of God rooted in the finished work of Christ on the cross at the resurrection in his ascension. Let's look there. Let's focus this Advent there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.